How great are those baptisms, huh? We rejoice with this family right here. Um, now I know when Daniel's having pancakes at Primo's that he's doing some good work, right? A lot of times, sometimes I should say, the baptisms are better than the sermon. That's likely to be true today. 2009, me and some friends, I'm going to drop these names because some of you know these guys, but Tyler Hendricks and Jonathan Grantham, Nathan Smith and Matt Thornton and I, uh, we spent some money on tickets to a New Orleans Saints playoff game. Uh, we, uh, in small group together, we got excited about a Saints win and then playing for the NFC Championship game. The winner would go on to the Super Bowl. So we spent a few hundred dollars each to buy a ticket. Great for the brotherhood, bad for our marriages. And we made a trip down to New Orleans and we bought into all the hype. We, uh, this tickets, by the way, even though we paid a bunch of money for them, they were in the cheap seats. We were on the second or third row at the very top from the from the very top in the end zone, okay, truly the cheap seats. And we bought into the hype that if we were loud, we would help the Saints win the game. And we were loud. One of the noisiest uh, environments that I've ever been in. And we got back home the next day, and I lost my voice. I could not speak above a whisper. Imagine how disappointed Susan was. Every, every claim that she made, I could not contradict. Every uh, issue that came up, she was guaranteed to have the last word but you know she rejoiced for a day it was a good thing but for more than a day not a good thing I I flipped that in my mind and I think about that what if Susan couldn't talk what if she couldn't encourage or express love what if she couldn't disagree and argue and make up again the idea this morning is this that in love and relationship there are words it's true The question I ask you this morning as we begin a new sermon series for the month of August is, does God speak? Does God use words? Does he speak to you? There's a writer of old, a a guy I believe was inspired by God. He, He penned these words in the longest chapter in the Bible. He said this, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When I was a young teenager, Amy Grant, anybody remember Amy Grant? She wrote a song. We got a few head nods. Okay, not so much at the 930 today, but we got some Amy Grant folks here. But she wrote a song to this and helped me memorize it. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. To be in relationship, to experience love, is to have words. And this morning, we are going to launch this series with a big overview on the meaning of the Bible. And it is important because there's a lot of bad ideas. There's a lot of sub-biblical ideas when it comes to the Bible. Quite honestly, um, part of my motivation is i am uh, been thinking about this because um, I'm sending a student off um, to college next weekend. In fact, six days from now, we're going to drive up to my alma mater and release our firstborn son to college next week, next Sunday. I'll probably be wearing sunshades up here with uh, puffy eyes. We've got to let go and let God. But, you know, I wonder what world is he going into? I remember my freshman year at that same university, and I remember it was the first time in my life where my faith really kind of got under the crucible, under uh, the microscope, and people began to ask me questions. And I went through that process called individuation. What do I believe? What do I take from my parents? What do I really believe? And so this series is designed to help us think more deeply about the Bible, the meaning of the Bible. I'm going to give you two words Uh, both words rhyme. So if you're a note taker, have your pen ready. If you're not a note taker, pretend like you're taking notes. It just makes me feel better about myself. I'm a really sensitive guy. The first word when it comes to the meaning of the Bible is the word glory. The word glory. 
Isaiah 43 says that we are created for the glory of God. Isaiah 49, it says that he called Israel for the glory of his name. In Psalm 106, it says he rescues Israel out of Egypt for his glory. In Ezekiel chapter 36, it says that he rescues Israel from exile for the glory of his name. On and on throughout the scripture. If there's any skeptics, I'll just mention a few more. In John chapter 7, it says that the son, in all that he did, he sought the glory of the father. In John 14, Jesus said that God answers prayer. The father answers prayers according to his glory. In John 17, the son suffered in those last days for the glory of God. Also in John 17, it says the ultimate end of us is to live and to see the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, I love this. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever it is, do it all for the glory of God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, serve. Don't live for yourself. Serve others. Serve God. Serve for the glory of God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says that Jesus is coming again one day and it will be for the glory of God. In Romans chapter 3, it says that the righteousness of the Son has been vindicated for the glory of God. In Romans 11, a very powerful, perplexing chapter in the New Testament, it says that everything, ultimately, everything, everything will ultimately result in the glory of God. In Habakkuk chapter 2, it tells us that the knowledge of God fills the earth. The knowledge of His glory fills the earth as the waters are to the sea. Anybody been to the sea? This summer, there's a lot of water on the seas. Wouldn't you say? The glory of God. The first word in the meaning of the Bible is the glory of God. There is something in you. You say, preacher, I don't know you. I know the human condition. I know me. And there's something in you that wants to uproot and upseat the glory of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 115 and verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, but unto your name be given the glory. There is a hunger within you for glory and if we approach this book this word from God if we approach it with our glory and we're seated on the throne and we're the hero of every story we're going to miss a lot and it's ultimately for his glory what about the parts that are confusing what about the parts that I can't understand it's all for his glory it's not for my own so I spend my days, I lean in to understand what I don't readily understand. It's about His glory. It's about His glory. The second word I'll tell you about in just a minute. But to understand what the Bible is, is to understand what the Bible is not. It is not, per se, a book of commands or a set of doctrines or an owner's manual. I bet your car has an owner's manual in the glove compartment, right? I bet you only look at it under one condition. What is that? When, so you can talk back, church. Come on. You look at it when what? When something is wrong. And the, some of us have this owner's manual approach to Scripture. I'm having doubts. Where do I turn? Page 147. I need to have the right beliefs about the end times. Where do I turn? Page 1472. I need to learn how to fix my kids. Where do I turn? Page 12 through page 3475. Like I, you, We come to it with this owner's manual approach of something's wrong, I need it fixed, where do I turn? Something's wrong, I need it fixed, where do I turn? And what do we want? The quick fix. But the Bible is not so much a book of commands or set of doctrines or an owner's manual. It is a word that rhymes with glory. It is a story. 
It's a story. And if we miss this, we'll miss a lot about the Bible and understanding the Scriptures. There are five acts to this story. This is called the meta-narrative of Scripture. Young seminarians, women and men studying for the ministry are learning this. And it's so good and it's so helpful and I think will help a new generation of the church. I want to share it with you this morning. New to most of you. Some of you are already dialed in on this. But there's a meta-narrative. There are five acts to this story. The first act is, act one is creation. In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, Scripture tells us, roamed this face of the deep. And the first element of creation is what? Light. God said, let there be light. God spoke it into being. Have you been anywhere this summer or even locally where your eyes have been open, your heart has been attuned to the beauty of creation around you? I have a friend, I think he's here in the 11 o'clock with his wife. We had dinner with him last night, and he's trying to talk me in. His name is Ed Egger. Ed is trying to talk me into joining him next month in Colorado to, to race with him, to do part of a run with him on a trail. He, not me, he's going to run 100 miles on a trail. How stupid is Ed, huh? I mean, let's just say it right here in church. But Ed's going to run 100 miles. He wants to finish. He wants to finish in under 30 hours. He's taken, he wants to take two friends with him. I told you he invited me. His, his friend that's going with him is a cardiologist. Pretty smart guy, actually, Ed. He's, bring, he's bringing his cardiologist, and he wants to bring his pastor, right? So have heart and soul will be covered, right? So Ed is all chiseled and cut, and he's training, and he wants to go to Steamboat Springs. Now, I don't want to endure that pain, but I would love to see the beauty. In fact, a, a year ago today, we just got home from Colorado ourselves, a few of us, and we, were, we hiked the Colorado Trail. To be somewhere. Have you been anywhere? Have you been attuned where you have just been seized and gripped and maybe even moved to tears or emotions at the beauty of creation? God is the creator. God creates. Act one is the creation. Act two is the fall. It's the fall. It's what I saw in the wee hours of the morning in a Walgreens parking lot, there were just three of us in the parking lot and two, two were fighting and they looked at me. I'm like, I don't want any of this. I'm, I'll use you for sermon illustration, but I'm not getting involved in this fight in the Walgreens parking lot really late last night, early this morning. There's the fall. It's, it's the sin. Sin entered the world. There's rebellion and wickedness in our heart. Often at Fondren Church, we say, we have you even say out loud, I am not awesome. You are not awesome. You are flawed and you are broken and sinful. That is the world in which we entered into. Iniquity is bound up in every heart in the room. Adam and Eve, the story of their rebellion is laid before us. And we see the beginning of this story unfold. We get glimpses of it because it's the first story of hide and seek. When they sinned, fear and guilt and shame engulfed their hearts. And they went and they hid. And God is a God who seeks. You hide, but God seeks. If you're a parent, you know this, but when your children are young, uh, it's fun to play hide and seek, and almost every child makes the rookie mistake. Well, they will go, and they will hide, and they are seen. Their, their feet, their legs are hanging out of the sofa, or they're just laying under a blanket, and their eyes are closed, and they think that because they can't see you, that you can't see them. 
And that's the way we are oftentimes with God. We are foolish when we think we can hide from Him. Now, can I say to anybody in the room, in fact, I'm sure there are several, if you're running and you're hiding, isn't it exhausting? When you're one person here and another person there, is that getting the best of you? Is that working? Is that leading to fruitfulness in your life? And the story of the gospel is to come out of hiding. And there's a God who seeks you. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall. Scripture gives us a story of Cain and Abel, the first dysfunctional family. How many of you have a dysfunctional? No, don't raise your hand. It's the first dysfunctional family and there are plenty to follow. In fact, there's no perfectly functional family in all the land, is there? But here we see Cain murder a brother. We see murder and polygamy and a lot of bad things take root in the hearts of humanity. And today we live in this fallen world. Today we see school shootings and terrorist threats and amber alerts. And more recently, it seems like every week, we see the appointment of a special counsel to investigate potential political corruption. Despite our advancements in education, despite the ability and progress we've made to share and disseminate and process and communicate information, despite it all, there is ugly sin in the human heart. And no amount of education or technology can help us overcome what is bound up in our heart. It is a fallen world. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall. Act three, this is where it gets confusing, perplexing for a lot. But act three is the nation of Israel. And I want to share with you a little bit. I want you to put on your thinking cap. For some of you, it'll be a reminder for many new instruction. But I want you to put on your thinking cap here. In Genesis chapter, uh, early part of Genesis, Genesis, uh, God rather calls out a man named Abram. Abram becomes Abraham, Father Abraham. Anybody grow up in a church culture? Were you saying on a church bus or somewhere, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham? Come on, I am one of them and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Father Abraham... God called him out, and God, listen to this part of the meta-narrative, God said, I'm going to bless you. But it's not going to be insular, it's not going to be tribal only, it's going to be you and your people are going to be blessed in order to be a blessing. Now, these people were hard-hearted and stiff-necked. These people turned to idols and away from God. They were a very rebellious people, but the idea of God is that they would be blessed in order to be a blessing. The chosen nation of Israel. Now, this was a nation. If you're going to be a nation, that means you're going to be a people. If you're going to be a people, that means you're going to have leadership. You're going to have ideas and opinions. You're going to set up a society. You're going to move towards civilization. You're going to raise families and raise crops and produce and put your hand to the plow. And you will need systems. You'll need a constitution. When Fondren Church started, I was at, we were at Dueling Hall and I boasted how, hey, we don't need a lot of policies. We just have conversations. And as God has grown our church, we have some policies now because we can only have so many conversations. We have leaders and structure and it can be bad. It can be evil. It's why some people run from the church. We're not a corporation, but we do need systems in place in order to serve people. And God met people. He met this chosen people the people that he would want to use to bless the world. And there was a system of righteousness that was given to them. There were laws. I've shared this with you before, but I want you to understand this. There were civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. Have you, uh, let's leave that up. Have you ever heard someone say to you, they find out that you go to church, that maybe you're a follower of Jesus, and they say, you know, I have trouble with the Bible. 
and have trouble that you, that you pick and choose what you want to believe. Because let's just be honest, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. Number one, you don't know that's in there. And number two, you're not living according to what it says. So is that true? Do we pick and choose? Are we carefully selective according to our culture and our preferences and our lifestyles? God meets people where they are. And this was a primitive time. This was a very different time. And into that, this nation, they have civil laws and ceremonial laws that are bound to that time period. But then there are moral laws. I will give you an example of the first two and then the latter two. Leviticus 11. Of the animals that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, can we get an amen? Any kind of great lizard, the gecko, not so bad. The monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, and the chameleon. These things are not good. A man, this is a great verse, maybe one of the, my favorites. A man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. Robert Green and Mr. Clean. Deuteronomy 14, but anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat. For, for to you it is unclean. Leave that up. How many of you like lobster and shrimp? You just violated the law of God. You just violated Deuteronomy chapter 14. But I tell you today that that's a, that's a ceremonial law. That had its time and its place to instruct a people to meet them where they are in much more primitive times of a group of people without a constitution, without laws, in, in encouraging them to love one another, to worship God, to have the right way of life, the right worship, the right regulations. But there are moral laws. These laws transcend time, place, and culture. Next, you shall not murder. How are we doing there? Pretty good? Everybody good? Look at me. Everybody good with this one? All right. Balcony folks? All right. Next up, here's a, here's a moral law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That has no, no cultural trappings. It's for everybody. Another one, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's for every time and every people, every culture. If you're having a hard time forgiving someone today, that verse is for you. Pastor Rick Warren said a couple of decades ago that we're so busy looking for a voice that God has already given us a verse. And there are some great principles and truths in Scripture, old and new, that can lead us and guide us. And those moral laws are so true to us today. They were true then and they're true now. But the civil, their constitution, the ceremonial laws, they went away. Jesus came and he says in Matthew 5, I came not to abolish the law. It's still important, but it leads us. I came to not to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. In Mark chapter 7, he said this related to ceremonial law. Are you so dull? He was talking to religious people set in their ways. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods are clean. Enjoy the shrimp and enjoy the lobster. Don't murder and love God with all your heart. You following me here? Jesus said this in Luke 24 about the law, Moses, and the prophets. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All of these things that seemed so archaic and ritualistic, they served a purpose in a time. But the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross is enough. And we live, aren't you glad, in a new day. There was a time in ceremonial where there were sacrifices and there was blood. And that blood reminded the people how awful sin was. 
how terrible it was and how separating it was. It reminded them of the violence and how they didn't want that anymore. And stomachs churned as they made these offerings. But now we simply accept what Christ has done for us. That sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, once and for all. Your sin and mine, past, present, and future, taken care of. So the ceremony on the civil law, they have passed. So you can hold your head up. There are things in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the law that you no longer are called to apply. So you're not picking and choosing, per se. You're following the law of God. And the law shows us our sin, exposes our waywardness, and points us to Jesus. So Act 1, what does it say at church? Act 1 is? Act 2 is? Act 3 is? Act 4 is? Jesus. And we just talked about him. Acts 5 is the church. And it's important for the church to begin to move past the fog of confusion, to understand the act that we're in, and not to live in Act, in act 1, 2, or 3, but to know Jesus. And to the Jesus who lived and died, who gave us his spirit, and we are in that era where we can live according to life and peace that he gives us, with a word that is living and active, and a spirit that, will insp- that has inspired it and will illuminate it, will shine that light on us. So we are in a story, a story we are a part of Act 5. And I want to say this about the story. We've talked glory and we've talked story. And I want to say this about the story. The story moves forward. It is a story that moves forward. If you don't understand this, you will have trouble with the Bible. If you don't understand this, you will pick and choose. You will be very selective. You will miss the heart of it and you will be Unable to live out 1 Peter 3.15 that says, Be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. God meets people right where they are. Mariah Carver and Daniel Wagner are two of our staff. And this week, they stood on the front steps. Some of you may have seen it. And they, they made a video. It was about a minute and a half. They posted it on our social media. And they invited you to join us in the month of August as we moved back to two services. And as we started this series, The Meaning of the Bible. And they mentioned that the Bible has inspired millions and even billions through the millennial. But it also confuses people. And parts of it are disturbing. Have you read the Bible? Have you come across some of those parts that are disturbing? I first say it's not about your glory, but God's glory. And that'll help you as you get to those parts. But what I want to do today is not do a cannonball into the deep end, but just kind of tip our toes in the swimming pool of something that when we read it, it's just disturbing. You guys ready to be disturbed? Here we go. This is from Deuteronomy 21. Suppose you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God hands them over to you and you take some of them as captives. And suppose you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you are attracted to her and you want to marry her. If this happens, you may take her to your home where she must shave her head, cut her nails, and change the clothes she was wearing when she was captured. She will stay in your home, but let her mourn for her father and mother. I'm sorry, let her mourn for her father and mother for a full month. Then you may marry her and you will be her husband and she will be your wife. Is that just pretty disturbing or what? I mean, let's talk about that. That just seems to be, to the modern hearer, that just seems to be demeaning, derogatory, repulsive, offensive, backwards. Are you with me? I mean, like, did you know that was in Scripture? Like, what is the meaning there? So what I want to do is give you an example of understanding the story and entering into this. At this time of Scripture, God 
does what he always does. He meets people where they are at, and he takes them one step forward. I want you to hear me today. God, the God of the Bible, meets people where they are, and he takes them one step forward. And in this day, we see a society where it was just really violent, where it was bloodthirsty and there were wars. And so in wars, there were a lot of battles. And in battles, there were winners and losers. And losers, you were either captured or you were killed. And winners got what was called the spoils of war. And the spoils of war were all viewed as property. The cattle, the, all the livestock, the possessions, the food and the clothing, the, the properties, and the women were considered, obviously, to, to be property at that time. And so we have the spoils of war. And into that, into that world, we get these instructions. Into the spoils of war, we get rules for the spoils of war. God meets people where they are and takes them one step forward. You see here, a man takes a wife. And in taking that wife, he is giving her protection. He's giving her food and clothing. And he's giving her shelter. Having her shave her head... Um, file, file her nails and change her clothes is giving her an opportunity to grieve and to mourn. You see, property doesn't have emotion. Spoils of war doesn't have feelings. But they were given this opportunity uh, to mourn. Taking her as his wife gave her an opportunity to have position and social status and therefore protection without it she would be on the street she would be vulnerable to exploitation likely through prostitution so do you see that what to us seems on the surface to be a very offensive practice is actually an advancement in civilization at the time do you follow my son and others will head off maybe some of yours will head off to college and they will be in the marketplace of ideas. And in this marketplace of ideas, they will be challenged in their faith in several ways and probably in academic settings. One of the charges against the Bible is the following. The Bible condones slavery. Ever heard of that or thought about that more deeply? Now, listen to me for a second. This is it cuts to the very nature of the Bible. Joseph Smith is the leader of the Mormons. His claim was that God met him on a mountain and gave him a book known as the Book of Mormon. Do you know the claim there is that he got the book, it was all neat and tidy, and it was just handed to him. It descended from heaven, and he got the book. That is not the Bible. The Bible was written over 1,500 years by various people, and it was written by people. Now, here's what we believe at Fondra, and here's what I teach, is that the Bible was written by human authors, but they were inspired by God. There's no book like the Bible. It is inspired, and it is inerrant, but God used humans over many cultures and continents and centuries to give us His Word. And therefore, we need to understand it helps us elevate the Scriptures. It helps us allow it to inspire us and lead us if we realize that God had particular people write it, to particular audience, in a particular time, at a particular place. Slavery was ubiquitous in the culture. There was no welfare system in the Old Testament. There was no social safety net. It was economically and socially not possible for slavery to exist. When a man would get in over himself and couldn't make it financially, he would have to sell himself into slavery. The Old Testament meets people where they are and takes them forward. And so society, that slavery was a big part. It says you do not mistreat the slave. You 
you treat them well and you, you, you only keep them for seven years. After seven years, they are free. In other words, there we are. God meeting them where they are and moving them, moving society, advancing humanity one step forward. In the New Testament, it gets a lot clearer and uncomplicated. In the New Testament, Paul writes a letter to a man named Philemon. And Philemon has a slave who is a runaway slave named Onesimus. And instead of capturing him and bringing him back into slavery, Paul writes to him. There's one chapter in uh, this, ver- in this book of the Bible, in the New Testament, and it says, free him, free him. Galatians 3.29, what scholars believe is the first egalitarian statement in all of literature. The Bible advances, the Bible advances humanity in its time and in its place. In Galatians 3.23, Paul said to the church at Galatia, when people were being free from in the gospel, he says that we are neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And Christians take heart. Followers of Jesus had led the way. History is very clear, abundantly clear, that followers of Jesus have led the way in the, in the world history of abolishing slavery. The Quakers and the Methodists more recently, John Wesley and William Wilberforce have been the leaders there. What's the first word when it comes to the meaning of the Bible today? What is it? Say it out loud. Say it loud and I'll let you go. Second word. There's five acts in that story. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and the church. And the story of the Bible, the story of God, is a story that meets people where they are and then moves them forward. When Jesus came, the greatest sermon ever preached, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I memorized it when I was 16 years old. And Jesus taught like this. He said, but you have heard it said, or you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. I'll give you one example. Time is, is of the essence. Jesus said, but you have said, you have heard, hey, don't murder. But I'm saying to you, if you're even angry in your heart towards somebody. Now, do not murder. Advance society. In the Old Testament, you know the law was eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's offensive to me. Is it offensive to you? That's offensive. Like we're, we're, the, Christ calls us forward. In that he talks about loving and blessing and, perse- and, and, and loving your enemies, those who curse you and persecute you. But at the time, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth was it was an advancement because there were there was revenge that wasn't proportional to the crimes that were committed. And God meets people in the story of the Bible and His story for His glory and advances them. And Jesus said, "Hey, you're not murdering, but you have anger in your heart." He advanced the narrative of Scripture. And we learned in Acts this summer, in Acts 15, there were religious people and they were quoting verses. Be careful, thumping the Bible. Okay, just be careful. But when we throw the Bible out there as a weapon, we have to be careful. And they were doing that, the religious people in Acts 15. They were quoting Genesis 17. I mean, it's in the Bible. It's in the old Genesis 17 that an uncircumcised male, a Gentile, cannot enter into the kingdom. And in Acts 15, they had councils and committees They appointed leaders and these apostles agreed that God was doing a new work in their day. And that that whole blessed to be a blessing was playing itself out. And they said at the Jerusalem council that it is salvation in Christ. Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressed in love. All that law, all those regulations and rituals seem so weird to us. 
But it was God meeting people where they were and advancing them forward. When you're in a story and you don't understand what's happening, it's easy to, to lose sight. Quick illustration, April of 1945, Japan surrendered. Allied forces were in Germany. These Allied forces went from attacking Germany to because of the truce, because of the war being over, they went from attacking to rebuilding. It would be easy to look at that story if you didn't understand what was happening and look and say, well, that's contradictory. They were, they were attacking and now they're, they're restoring, they're rebuilding. The only way that, that makes sense is what? Is to understand the bigger story behind that. The victory has been given on the cross. And you and I can lay down our weapons and live in a new day following the law of love. Would you stand with me?